All right. Well, we are continuing where we left off last week. Uh, this is uh, part two of last week's sermon. So if you notice that the handout was the same, basically, uh, that is why. Same outline that we used last week. Really? Maybe they were light on some of the... These weren't in there? Oh, I guess it was some got them and some didn't, it sounds like. Okay, there you go. Then it's good to go. Okay, sounds like maybe a few got missed. Uh, so last week you remember that we, we began a road trip. We got in the station wagon and we laid the seats down and we put the blankets down and we went on this journey through the Old Testament. And we talked about how a, a road trip is as much about the journey along the way as it is about arriving at the destination. And the journey that we are on is allowing the Old Testament to speak on the topic of a sacrifice or an offering. One of the central themes that we find in the Scripture. Of course, we're doing this because we're kind of driving deeper into Jesus' words that the whole Old Testament is about Him. So we're trying to see some ways that the Old Testament points us to Jesus and finds its fulfillment in our Lord. So we're continuing on that journey today. Uh, just by way of reminder, what we've seen so far, our first stop officially, the first official offering or sacrifice in the Bible was the story of Cain and Abel. And in that story, uh, we began to understand little pieces of, the, the, of what a sacrifice is. Uh, you remember I had the illustration of an acorn. starts with that little seed, but it can grow into a mighty oak tree. So we learned in that story that the shedding of blood is a key element. The sacrifice that God accepted was the sacrifice that required the taking of a life. We moved on to Noah. and We saw in that account, uh, we learned something new there, that a sacrifice had to be clean. God, God had designated clean and unclean animals, and we learned that the sacrifice that He accepts is the one that comes from an animal that is clean. We also saw in the account of Noah that an acceptable sacrifice could placate or stay God's judgment. Remember, he smelt the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice. He accepted it from Noah, and then he promised to never again judge the earth through a flood. And then we stopped last week at the story of, of Abraham and Isaac. Remember, Isaac was the son of the promise. Abraham had waited 25 years for God to come through on that promise to give him a son. He does that, and then he asks Abraham to take the life of his dear son. And you remember the story, and we learned there that a sacrifice could act as a substitute. God demanded that he sacrifice his son, but in that last moment, he stopped him from doing it. The angel of the Lord spoke, and he provided a substitutionary sacrifice. There was a ram there caught in the thicket. Isaac's life was preserved because the sacrifice took his place. So we saw that understanding of a sacrifice as a substitute, preserving the life of a person. We now uh, come to our next stop, and that is in Exodus chapter 12. And we look at the story of the Passover. A familiar story, I think, in biblical history. Israel as a nation is in Egypt. They went there 
in the beginning because there was a famine and they were blessed when they initially got there. But over time, as they grew, the, the Egyptian leadership said, hey, there's way too many of these Hebrews. They're going to come and take us over. We should enslave them. So Israel has been in Egypt for 400 in around 30 years. And they are under Egyptian bondage, under mean, cruel taskmasters. And they're crying out to the Lord, deliver us, save us, take us out of here. And God sends Moses, right, his deliverer, his man. He's going to be the guy that leads this great exodus of God's people leaving Egyptian bondage and going out to the promised land. And he does that through a series of plagues. And the plagues, each plague gets worse. And we come to the final plague, which is the all the firstborn children of the whole land are going to be destroyed. God's going to send His angel, this destroyer, and everyone in the land, every firstborn in every home, even the flocks from the animals are going to die. Even from Israel. If they don't take God's provision, their firstborn will also perish. But of course, the story is called the Passover because God gives them a way out, a way of escape. He tells them to sacrifice a lamb. A lamb without blemish and without spot. It must be a pure lamb. They're to kill this animal. They're to eat the meat. Whatever is left, they are to burn and consume. But they're to put the blood on the doorposts of their home. That animal. And we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. For I, this is the Lord speaking, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood of the animal shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God gives His people this provision with this Passover lamb. And we learn two key, very significant elements here as, this, as our understanding of the sacrifice grows and grows. First thing we learned is that a sacrifice should be a spotless lamb without blemish. He wants the best of the herd, the best of the flock. I think it's because He knows how we are. He doesn't want any old animal lying around. And I could picture myself if I had a small flock of animals, and maybe there's that one goat that's kind of raggy and shabby, and you know he's always scratching his side on the fence, and his, his fur's all worn off, and, and maybe you were already thinking, I don't know if I even want to eat that, it's got something going on. And the Lord says, kill an animal, we might say, hey, I'll... I'm not going to use that one. You know, it doesn't, I'm not going to lose much money giving up that one. But he says, I want the pure, spotless, clean, pure, perfect lamb. He doesn't want any old sacrifice. He only accepts the one that is undefiled. The second aspect is huge as we are pointing forward to Christ. And that is that we learn now that a sacrifice can satisfy God's wrath. God has decreed this awful judgment that all of the firstborn in the land will perish. And this judgment will even fall upon Israel 
without this Passover lamb. But the shed blood of this sacrifice placed on their doorpost satisfies God's wrath and causes Him to pass over all that are under the blood of that sacrifice. I think we can see the connection here to the work of Christ. Any that is under the shed blood of Jesus will not face God's judgment, but He passes over all of His people that have trusted in Christ who are under the shed blood of our Lord. I think there's also some application to make here for us a principle maybe that we can learn. When we think about the animal, the spotless lamb, uh, we see that the Lord wants their best. He wants the best of the flock. He doesn't want the raggedy animal. He doesn't want the least. He doesn't want the thing that has no value to them. But He wants the, the cream of the crop, if you will. And I think we can learn from that that He also wants our best. He also wants our first fruits. He doesn't want the leftover at the end of our day uh, where I'm exhausted and barely there and, and opening up the, the Word and falling asleep. Uh, where, I, where I start praying every night and just that's my, my way that I kind of zone out to go to sleep. But I think we can see here that He wants our best. He wants us when we're prepared and ready and awake and everyone's different. You know, for some of us, that means getting up early and giving Him that first time in the morning. Uh, for others, it's midday. For others, it's in the evening when you have time to relax. Uh, but I think there's a, a principle here to be learned, whether we're serving the Lord or whether it's our devotional life, that He doesn't want our leftovers. He doesn't want us just to squeeze Him in if everything else gets done. But He wants the first fruits. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, says that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And what I believe he means here is he wants all of us. He wants us to give ourselves, our entire life, to God as a sort of sacrifice, willing to say, Lord, whatever you have for me, all of me is given for all of you. We move on to our last stop in the Old Testament. And that takes us to Leviticus. It's the next book in the Bible, Leviticus 16. And as we turn there, I think we've seen in all of these sacrifices um, escalation. We're learning more every time. A, a new aspect is coming into our, into our understanding. And we're also learning more about the need and the purpose of the sacrifice, why they are necessary, why God has spent so much time in the Bible teaching us about sacrifices and calling His people to perform them. As you turn to Leviticus 16, we're in a time in Israel's history now where the sacrificial system is, is, is in full force. It's happening. They're still in the tabernacle. That's the mobile temple before they build a physical temple, but they're in the wilderness with this tabernacle. Whether it's a tabernacle or the temple, worship is identical. The system has been set up. And it says in the book of Ezekiel that the soul that sins shall die. And the sacrificial system was a picture for them every day of that verse. That sin causes death. There's a reminder that sin causes the shedding of blood. And they would see this Every day, day in and day out, the priests were there. The priests were, in effect, butchers. Much of what they did was, was butchering animals. 
So we find ourselves here in this story at the Day of Atonement. One day out of the year, the high priest would make atonement for the sins of the entire nation. Now, sacrifices were happening every day, but this was a significant day that the Lord had set aside where one man, only the high priest, would go into the center court of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, to perform this, this ritual, this ceremony. So let's read, starting in verse 15, about this Day of Atonement of Leviticus 16. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house, and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord, and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull, and some of the blood of the goat, and put it on the horns of the altar all around, and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, and cleanse it, and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. I think this is a difficult stuff for us to imagine, or maybe I'll just speak for myself, but all of this bloodshed, sprinkling blood on everything, I mean, we might see someone doing, doing that now and think that was not of God. It might be something far worse. Someone sacrificing an animal and sprinkling blood and having some religious ceremony with all this blood. But God was showing His people the seriousness of sin. If you notice what we just read, he was making atonement and consecrating inanimate objects. Before the ceremony could even officially happen, he had to make atonement for the tent and for the altar because it dwelt in the midst of a sinful people. Just because that tent was inside of the camp of sinners, it had to have uh, be made. It had to be atoned. The sins had to be atoned for these inanimate objects before this ceremony could even happen. Before God would even accept the atonement of the sins of the people. That's how serious He took their sin. So He does that. He sprinkles blood and all the different elements of worship. And then we move to verse 20. And when He has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, He shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquity of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So during this process, there's two goats that are, that are a part of this ceremony. And this one is where we, where we get the term scapegoat. This goat is brought in and he confesses the sin of the people 
over the head of the goat. All of their iniquity, all of their sin is placed upon this animal. But this animal, you see, it doesn't die. It's sent outside of the camp. It's cast off and forsaken, sent out into the wilderness on its own. A picture of Israel's sin being imputed to this goat, to an innocent one, and being cast out away from their camp as their sin is cast out. Then in verse 23, Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. So we see that first the sin of the people was confessed over this innocent live animal and that sin metaphorically was sent then outside of the camp. And now he takes this animal and this animal is consumed as a sin offering, as a guilt offering for the people as their sin is atoned for. And here we learn much more about this idea of a sacrifice as it points to our Lord. Uh, let me just say if if the word atonement is unfamiliar to you, or that's a word that we often throw around or the Bible uses, an easy way to think about it is at-one-ment. That's literally what it means, at-one-ment. So when sin is atoned for, God and man are at-one again. Uh, when sin is atoned for, it means we have been reconciled back to God. So the only way for us to be at-one with God is that our sins are atoned for. So that's what's taking place here. This act restores fellowship between God and man. So what have we learned in this last story about a sacrifice that God accepts? Uh, number one, we've learned that a blood sacrifice can now atone for sin. Now this is huge. Uh, it may have been implied in the past sacrifices, but it is explicit here. God's people have sinned. Their sin must be atoned for, and He allows an animal to act as a substitute, thus atoning for or covering their sin. We also learned about this substitutionary sin bearer. Think about the goat. He is an innocent animal. He has nothing to do with the sin of the people, but their sin is placed upon him, and then he is then cast out, forsaken, sent outside of the camp. It's a picture of their sin leaving and being sent out. And we'll make some connections here in a moment. And then lastly, uh, we've learned that the atonement of sin is required for God to dwell with His people and have fellowship with them. That these, these rituals, these ceremonies must happen for sinful people to dwell with a holy God. Now we're only in Leviticus, but I think that that sums up the teaching of the sacrifice in the Old Testament. Surely many more sacrifices are going to happen, but we've looked at the key elements that bring all of these aspects of a sacrifice together. So what have we learned on this journey so far? We've learned that the shedding of blood is a key element to a sacrifice that God accepts. We've learned that a sacrifice has to be taken from a clean animal that God has designated as clean. Uh, we've learned that an acceptable Sacrifice can stay His judgment, can, can hold off His judgment. 
We've learned that a sacrifice could act as a substitute, preserving the life of a person, of a human. We've learned that a sacrifice must be spotless and without blemish. It must be pure and undefiled. We've learned that a sacrifice can satisfy the wrath of God. It can be used as a covering whereby His judgment is satisfied or His justice is satisfied. Uh, We've learned that a sacrifice can be a substitutionary sin bearer where that sacrifice takes the guilt of the people. We've learned that a sacrifice can atone for sin. It can forgive, at least temporarily, people of their sins. And lastly, we learned that the atonement of sin through a sacrifice is required for man to have fellowship with God. But where does that leave us in the Old Testament? Yes, the sacrificial system is a very vivid picture of a result of, of the result of sin. The soul that sins shall die. And Israel saw that day in and day out. They smelled it, the shed blood, the animals burning on the altar. But those sacrifices happened every day, day after day and year after year, showing in themselves their inadequacy, showing the need for something better, the need for something complete or perfect, that they themselves were not the end. They were not it because they constantly had to be offered over and over and over. So that leads us now to our destination, and that is the book of Hebrews. If you would turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. How does all of that that we've talked about, how does that drive us and point us and anticipate the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Hebrews chapter 9, 26, about halfway through that verse. But as it is, Jesus has prepared once for all at the end of the ages, He has appeared, sorry, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself as just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, not to or will return a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for Him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, you've heard me use that language a lot, that the Old Testament looked forward, but it saw these things in shadowy form. They didn't have the full picture, the full substance of what God would eventually do in Christ. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, that's the law, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those that draw near. We see here that Jesus Christ's sacrifice is a once and for all sacrifice. He has come, we read, to put away sin once and for all. In the old covenant system, you had bloodshed after bloodshed after bloodshed. You had, you had flocks, herds being grown solely so that they could just be shuttled off to the temple day in and day out. Blood was constantly being shed. But when Jesus comes and offers Himself, He is a once-for-all sacrifice. He is a perfect 
sacrifice that does what none of these systems were able to complete. The, the author there contrasted his work to the Old Testament sacrifices that he said were continually offered every year. They never ceased, yet they were unable to make perfect those who drew near. There was no salvation found in the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats. Verse 2, Otherwise, speaking of those sacrifices, would they not have, have ceased to have been offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible, and this is key, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So he tells us here that the Old Testament sacrifices were a reminder of sin. They were to show the people the devastating effects of sin and our need for atonement to have fellowship with God. But it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to actually take away sin. While these sacrifices gave mankind an understanding of what God requires, they also reveal to us the need for something greater, the need for something complete and perfect. And we find that in the work of Christ. Down at, the, at verse 10, And by that will, that is the will of God, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In contrast to the inadequacy and incompleteness of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant system, Jesus' sacrifice is a perfect and eternal sacrifice. He is the only one that is able to make perfect those that draw near. So now as we have the New Testament, and now as we look back in hindsight through the lens of the cross, with all of God's revelation before us, Matthew to Revelation, uh, we look back on all those things that we learned about the sacrifices and how they find their completion in Jesus. Uh, so number one, Jesus fulfills the requirement of the shedding of blood as He gives His life on Calvary and sheds His own blood. Jesus is the clean sacrifice that God accepts. Remember, God only accepted a clean animal. Jesus is the clean one that God accepts. His sacrifice stays God's judgment upon sinners. As He looks at His Son on the cross, He promises to never again judge those who trust in Him by faith. Jesus' work at Calvary, His sacrifice, He stands as our substitute. His life is taken that our life might be preserved. Jesus is the pure, spotless sacrifice without blemish. He is the only one that could be offered because He is the only one that is without sin and totally pure. You remember John the Baptist when he saw our Lord said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His sacrifice at Calvary satisfies God's wrath. It is a sacrifice that satisfies God's awful judgment against sin. We also see that Jesus is our sin bearer. Just like that innocent goat that had the sin of Israel confessed over them, Jesus is the innocent one that had no part of our sin, but our, our guilt 
and our sin was placed upon Him, and He was forsaken, cast out. And our sin and our guilt was cast as far as the east is from the west. Jesus' work on the cross atones for sin. In His death, He puts sin away once and for all, restoring the fellowship between God and man that had been severed at the fall through sin. And He is the atoning sacrifice that God demands for anyone to have fellowship with Him. We must all come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. So we covered a lot, but I hope that you can see that all roads point to Jesus. None of these pieces on their own tell the whole story, but when we bring them all together, we see clearly and vivid, vividly many aspects of what Christ came and perfected, what He came to fulfill. What started off as an acorn, as we had a little bit of information, grows over time until we are prepared for and see uh, the, necess- the necessity of the sacrifice of our Lord. This is just one of many ways that the Old Testament looks forward to the work of the coming of Christ and how He perfectly fulfills what was inadequate or temporary in the Old Testament. So as we close, i got to ask the question, because we're talking about sacrifices and the shedding of blood and, and salvation in Christ. The question is simple. Are you under the blood of Jesus? Have you trusted in Him? Is He your Savior? And is He your Lord? Because as we've seen in these stories, there is no refuge apart from Jesus. There's no safety apart from Jesus. Like Noah in the ark, there was no salvation outside of God's plan. There was no safety outside of the ark. There was only safety and salvation found inside the ark. And as we saw in the Passover, there was no safety or salvation apart from that blood of that Passover lamb. It was only those that were under the blood, that were trusting in God's Word, that found that God would pass over them in His judgment. And it is only in Christ that we find salvation from our sin, forgiveness for the iniquity of our youth. 